Hey, good morning. How are we doing? Good. It's tight up here. It's tight. If I fall off, Pete, you're on duty. Catch me. You got me? Perfect. Hey, welcome. My name's David, and uh, I'm on staff with Frontline and Center. I get to be down here. So if you haven't seen me before, if you don't know me, uh, I have one of the unique roles, just like Blake, uh, where we get to bounce around at both campuses. So excited to be with you today. And uh, you saw this sweet intro video behind me uh, called This Is Us. And I just got to tell you, we have had more fun preaching this series than a lot of series uh, in the past because this is telling uh, through eight small stories, one large story, and that's the story of God. Uh, start of creation, we started with Abraham, then we went on to Moses, then we went on to David last week, and this week we are on Esther, and we're going to have a blast. This is going to be a lot of fun, uh, but if you have your Bibles, open them up. We're going to be in Esther. It's a smaller book, um, and so disclaimer, we're going to have a lot of text. Uh, but we're not going to read the whole book, okay? If I could, I would, but I can't, so we won't. So open it up. As you're turning to Esther, I want to tell you something. Uh, any veterans in the room? Anybody that served? Perfect. First of all, thank you. Thank you for your service. Can we just say thank you? Thank you for your service. Thank you for what you do. Um, in the Marines, I was doing some reading, and uh, in the Marines, there's this really cool uh, leadership philosophy that penetrates all of the Marines in particular. And I, I want to read it to you or just read um, how Marines and how Marine officers treat leadership. And this is awesome. Uh, it says, America has been under the steadfast leadership from Marines with extraordinary leadership traits with Generals Mattis, Dunford, and Kelly. These are the Defense Secretary, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and then the White House Chief of Staff nominated to serving high positions. The spotlight has been on the Marine Corps and their tribal culture of integrity. This means Marine leadership styles, principles, and traits have become apparent. So here's, here's guys, these are generals. These are leading our military on behalf of our country. Some of the highest positions of leadership, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of soldiers and lives that are entrusted to them that are under their care of leadership. They've risen to one of the highest positions of leadership that's even attainable in our country. And this is what they say. Don't be surprised um, to see um, when you Google Mattis, this General Mattis, um, when you find that he refuses others to carry his own bags. So he carries his own bags, he does his own thing, but then it goes beyond and it says, selfish leadership is a leadership buzz term in the world today. All these gentlemen have one thing in common, they eat last. You ever thought about that before? That even when it comes down to meals and, and they're in the mess hall or something like that, that, that generals and officers and people in positions of leadership always eat last and allow those that they serve to eat before them. You will not find a single officer in the Marines who eats before an enlisted Marine. And then this person, just clever, he says, if you do find a person in a Marine officer uniform eating first, call the police because this person is a Russian spy. So that's a really easy way to find them, right? You just put them all in a room and if there's an officer that's eating and scooping extra mashed potatoes, you go, I found him, I found him. This was easy. His name was Yori, you know, we, that was easy. So anyway, it's just kind of this funny concept that oftentimes we overlook and we go, leadership, the goal of leadership and the goal of, of rising up in a business or a company or, or, or whatever it is, we look at, at leaders in our world or leaders in our culture and we go, man, it's got to be nice up at the top. You know, we look and we, whether we see the salary or we see the position of influence or we see uh, just education and opportunities and all this stuff. I, we went to a hockey game last night out in Muskegon and I have a friend who works on the team. So he's the equipment manager and he set us up, this was crazy, set us up to be in the owner's suite 
Okay, this is like the coolest sports experience I've ever had, and unfortunately, it's with the Muskegon Lumberjacks. And so we're in, we're in this owner's suite, and it's like free food, you know, and there's like drinks in the fridge, and I mean, pop, and, and so there's a guy that like walks over to the fridge, and he like pulls out a Pepsi, and he's like, this is free, right? I'm like, I, I, yeah, I think so. He's like, this is free. This is free. And he's like, Slow, this is free? You sure this is free? Because none of us have ever experienced what this is like before. We've never been somewhere that just gives you for free. Hey, you're with the owner, so you, you guys are free. It was such a fun experience, but the, often the mentality is, man, it's got to be nice at the top. It's got to be awesome at the top. And yet, what we're going to learn today by jumping into the book of Esther is often the top isn't those serve you or the people that you lead are there to serve you. It's that often when you're in a position of leadership and you have influence, whether it's small or whether it's large, you as the leader are tasked with taking care of the people that are underneath you. That a position of leadership actually calls for a greater sacrifice and greater servanthood for the people that you serve. So I got to give you a little history on Esther. I got to tell you what's going on so you understand. The book of Esther is a riot. I just got to tell you, if you haven't read it ever or if you haven't read it recently, here's my challenge. Read it. Read it. It's not long. You can do it in one sitting, maybe 20 minutes, and you will be blown away by what is in this book. So I'm going to try to summarize it for you, but you're going to miss some really cool details if you don't read it for yourself. So read it for yourself. Um, But here's something crazy before I jump in. Um, Do you know that God is not mentioned in the entire book of Esther? Isn't that crazy? That as we read this book that's in the Bible, and the Bible is all about God, and this series is all about God, we picked a character whose book does not feature the name God at any point in the entire book. But here's the thing, that doesn't mean that God wasn't involved. So your task as we read through this together today, different sections, is look for God. Where's he at work? Where do I see him? What is he up to? What is he doing? Uh, Because God is working behind the scenes. So the the book of Esther starts off the king, uh, King Xerxes is his name. What a name. And he throws a banquet. He's like, hey, I'm friends. I'm the owner, right? Welcome to my owner's suite. Everybody come in. I'm throwing a banquet. Here's the food. It's unlimited. Here's the drinks. But these are more the alcoholic kind. Help yourself. Drink as much as you want. And uh, so the king gets drunk. And Oftentimes, um, we don't make good decisions when we're intoxicated. Is that fair to say, just from a humanity standpoint? And uh, so King Xerxes makes this statement, and he says, bring out my wife and uh, only wear her crown. And the key word there is only, you know, only wear her crown. Bring her out and just show her off to everybody here. And so um, her name is Vashti, Queen Vashti. She's the queen. She says, no, I'm not coming out. I'm not going to be humiliated. I'm not going to be made sportive. No, I'm not coming out. And so the king, embarrassed and drunk and with all of his buddies, he, he feels bad. And so he, he says, what, what can I do? He brings the leaders and the elders and the experts in the lawn. He says, what can I do? Because she just embarrassed me and I, I want to punish her. And they're like, well, you can write a decree and you can cast her out and you can exile her. And she's, she's gone. And she so goes, that sounds good. She's gone. So she loses her position as queen. She's sent off away, never to ever return before the king. So the king writes this decree. So now the king is without a wife. So the king starts uh, this process for finding a new queen. And so it says this, he appoints commissioners in every province to bring all the beautiful young virgins to the king. So they went all throughout the land, all throughout the reign. It's the Persian empire. They went all throughout and they just grouped up all these young, beautiful women who were virgins and they brought them to the king. And the king, this is how it would work. They would spend six months getting one type of beauty treatment and then six months getting another type of beauty treatment, and then they would be brought before the king, and the king would test drive. 
they would be raped by the king. One after another, after another, after another, after another. And the king's process for finding a wife was which one smittens me enough that I'll keep her. And here's the thing, if you were a woman, you had no rights, you had no voice, you had nothing, you were just taken from your family, never ever to return. And after the king had slept with you, you were no longer, uh, you're no longer available to be married off. You became what's called a concubine. And so it, it even says here, it's, it's really interesting just to read it. Um, I think Esther 2.17, go ahead and put that one up for me, Rue. Esther 2.17 uh, says this, Esther is one of these women that comes along and it says, now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So the king set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti, and the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberty. And so maybe you've read this story before. Maybe you watched the Veggie Tales version, and it didn't depict a lot of the details I just shared with you, rightfully so. And... Uh, but you look and you go, wow, how cool. Like Esther just became queen. Esther became queen through a horrible process. And there's something, there's just a couple important details you just need to know about Esther. First of all is that Esther's name actually isn't Esther. Did you know that? That Esther was actually given a new name, a Persian name, Esther, which means star. But Esther's real name was Hadassah. Hadassah is his Hebrew name because Esther was a Jew. And Hadassah means Myrtle. Now, some of you go, Myrtle Beach, sounds fun. Not where we're going. Esther, named Myrtle in Hebrew, means a, ple a pleasant fragrance or righteous. Think about this for a second, because there's always meaning in the names in the Bible. So Hadassah, it means myrtle. She's a pleasant fragrance. She's nice to be around, but then it also means, or it speaks the same word, is used to describe the righteous before God in other areas of scripture. So Esther is described as righteous and as pleasant. And it says person after person that she interacts with, people loved her. But then, this is also where it's interesting, when her name was translated or changed to Esther, and it took on this Persian form, the new name, um, it also came from, so this is like Hebrew, I guess. Hebrew, the Hebrew word Hester, with an H, means hiddenness. So what you need to know about Esther is that Esther was a Jew, but nobody knew she was a Jew. In fact, it was secret. The one person that knew was a man named Mordecai who worked for the king. Mordecai was a gatekeeper, and Esther's parents had died when she was younger. So Mordecai, her uncle, said, hey, come with me. I will take you as my own daughter. I will raise you. I will provide for you. So Mordecai works for the king. Mordecai's a Jew. Esther is also a Jew, but nobody knows it, and nobody knows they're related. Are you seeing where this is going? Ooh, tension, right? This is like a good movie. So nobody knows who it is, but Esther gets chosen as the queen, and who doesn't know that she's a Jew? The king. King has no clue. So let's keep reading. Um, we're going to go Esther 3, verse 5 and 6. And like any good story, we need a villain. So we have a villain. Here comes a villain. Esther 3, starting verse 5. 
It says, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So here comes this character, this bad man named Haman, who was elevated to the second position in the kingdom, and Mordecai's working at the gate. And so as, as Haman would walk past, all the other people would bow down to Haman, but Haman was an evil man. And so Mordecai, being a devout Jew, said, I'm not bowing down to you. I'm just not doing it. Won't do it. And so he doesn't bow down, and it stirs so much hatred and so much anger in Haman's heart that he says, I don't even want to just kill you. I want to kill all your people. Who are Mordecai's people? The Jews. So Haman turns his sights on the Jews, and it says, Esther 3 in verse 13 Dispatches were sent by couriers because he went to the king, to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all of the Jews. He went to the king and he said, there's this one guy and he doesn't listen and his people are the same way. Can I just destroy this group of people that pushes back and rebels against you? And the king says, sure, go for it. And so here we are, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods, a copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. So here's the problem. Esther has been elevated to this place of leadership, and she is now a queen, but she doesn't have unfettered access to the king. So the issue becomes, Haman enters the scene and says, I hate Mordecai, and I hate the Jews, and I'm going to destroy the Jews and murder all of them, and it's all going to happen on one day, and it's going to be done, and that will teach Mordecai. What is Esther to do? And so Esther and Mordecai begin talking. Esther 4, verse 6, and it says this. So Hathak, this person who works between Mordecai and Esther, went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and to explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Same Uncle Mordecai, or Dad, I can't do this. It looks like my family is going to be destroyed, my friends are going to be destroyed, my home is going to be destroyed. Every person that matters to me in this world is going to be annihilated because of evil that's existing in front of I can't do anything. If I go before the king, I can't even open my mouth if he decides that I, I push it. Remember what happened to the last queen? She just didn't show up and she was banished. What, what could happen to me if I show up before the king and he's in a bad mood or he's drunk or whatever it is? 
She says, there's nothing I can do. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And then this is like the best line ever. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. What is she to do? I just wonder for us, you know, I just imagine her, you know, thinking, God, where are you? Nick, how could you let this happen? Where are you? Remember, who's the one person that's not mentioned in this whole book? God. And I think it's so true. I mean, we could just infer her life just going, God, here I am. I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place, but both of them end in death. If I say nothing, I'm going to end up being killed and annihilated with all my people. If I risk my life before the king, I, I face death. It's not just bad and bad. It's death and death. God, I, evil's winning. In fact, evil's crushing, and we're your people, we're the Jews. Where are you? Aren't you doing anything? Aren't you paying attention? Are you awake? Do you see what's going on, God? And I wonder if any of us have ever been in that place specifically. Like, if you just look around, um, here's Esther, right? I've been enslaved as the king. I've been raped. I've been separated from my family. I'm hiding my identity, and people will be murdered that I care about, and there's nothing I can do. What about us? No one knows me. In my place of work, in my school, where I live, there's nobody that knows me. My true identity is hidden. Nobody knows like this inner working, the inner depths. Um, What about I'm stuck? I can't leave. I can't go anywhere. I can't do anything. I can't say, I'm, I'm literally stuck. God, I want to do for you and I want to move in. I am stuck. I'm prohibited from doing what I feel like you're calling me to do. What about this? I just wrote, Satan turned my life into a playground. Have you ever been there? Where it doesn't matter what area of life that you're looking at, it just seems like Satan's just having a blast. It's like he's affecting marriage over here and he's affecting family relationships over here and then you're sick or you're plagued with something like anxiety or fear and then you lose your job and then your house gets threatened. I mean, it's just like, it seems like, man, when it rains, it pours. You ever have a season like that? There's one more. I look around and see evil winning everywhere and God is silent or even worse, absent. Have you ever asked God, where are you? Do you even care? Are you even paying attention? Do you see evil winning? I thought you defeated death, and yet it looks like it's rampant in my life. I looked this up. That's personal. Let's get just a little bit broader. Um, In our world today, do you know that there are 73 abortions a day in the state of Michigan. Not United States, not worldwide, just in our backyard, there are 73 abortions that take place every single day. That's 26,000 a year, and that's one out of every four pregnancies ends in abortion. This isn't far off. This is here. That there's chances that you know people 
who've had an abortion, or you walked with them after the fact or before the fact, maybe you pled with them, please don't do it. One in four abortions in our neck of the woods end in abortion. I mean, it's... How about refugees? You know, there's 15,000 refugees from around the world that have been imported into Michigan. That this is where they've come, they've fled, they're here, they're living, they don't speak our language, they don't understand, the food is different, the culture's different, the clothes are different, everything here is different. 15,000 in the last five years live in Michigan. What about divorce? Divorce, there were 28,000 divorces in Michigan last year. 28,000. And here's my question. There's a good chance you know someone that fits into one of these categories. And how easy is it for us to look and just go, God, I see the scoreboard. Evil's winning. Where are you? Are you paying attention? Do you care? So let's keep reading. And let's look for God in this story. Good. If you have a Bible... Um, read this one with me, Esther 4, verse 15 and 17. 15 through 17, sorry. It says this, Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. <laughs> I love this. And if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. But let me ask you something. Who are they praying to? I, who are they praying to? God. It's the first time in the book of Esther that we see God approached. That he, we don't see his name, but we see his people seeking him. So what happens? We're going to go through this a little quick. Esther 6, verse 1. Here's what happens. That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. That's just funny. Hey, bring somebody in. Just read about me. Just tell me what I've done. Recap everything. The people that I talked to, the decisions I made, just recap it. This will help me. This will put me to sleep. And so this guy comes in, right? Lucky guy. He's sitting there. Who knows what the king's wearing? Just reading the Chronicles. This is awkward. And so he's reading it, and he says this. Um, it was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed two guys that tried to kill the king, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court right now? And it says this, Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole that he had set up for him. He put a 75-foot pole in his front yard and said, I'm going to kill Mordecai, and then I'm going to kill all the Jews, and I'm going to go to the king, and I'm going to get a free stamp to do it. And so Haman comes in to kill Mordecai, and the king goes, I never did anything for Mordecai when Mordecai saved my life. So he brings Haman in, and he asks the question, what should I do for the guy that the king wants to honor? He doesn't say who it is. He just says, Haman, what should I do for the king? What do you think Haman thinks? He goes, what can I get out of this deal? He's, oh, man, here's what you're going to do. You're going to parade him around the entire city, all the provinces. You can just 
this guy is awesome. Have somebody just proclaiming, he's awesome, he's amazing. Look at him, he's wearing the king's robe. He's on this valiant horse, right? Like a steed, not like a Shrek steed, like donkey, like a big steed. Like, look at me, look at him, he is awesome. And so the king says, that's perfect, do it for Mordecai. And can you imagine the anger and the hatred that starts burning in Haman right now? Like the guy I just came to get impaled, I have to parade and point to him and say, how awesome is he? He's great. Look at his robe. You see how all of a sudden God interrupted and interjected himself into the story through something as small as the king can't sleep tonight. And a pivot happens. Well, then Esther gets the courage and she invites the king and she invites Haman, come to a banquet. So they come to a banquet, and Esther like, gets nervous, doesn't say it, says, okay, I invited you to my banquet to invite you to my banquet tomorrow. That was the, this is a pre-banquet to the banquet. Would you come to my banquet tomorrow? So the king goes, sure, what do you want? Ask me. I'll give you up to half the kingdom. So they show up the next day. It says this, verse, or, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? What do you want? It'll be given to you. What's your request? Even up to half of the kingdom, half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition, and spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. And can you imagine this scene? Haman's probably wet himself right now. <laughs> He's going, oh no, this is not going the way I thought it was. Esther said, an adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman. And it gets better. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, probably intoxicated. Let's just not read into that, but let's acknowledge that. Probably intoxicated, left his wine. I told you. I told you we weren't inferring. Left his wine and went out into the palace garden. And this is the best part. I haven't seen this. is hilarious. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Please, I had no idea you were a Jew. Can you imagine? He didn't know. So he's begging for his life. This is so funny. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Or no, no, I'm sorry, I read that already. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther's reclining. What does that look like? <laughs> king left because he's ticked. Haman's like begging and like crawling on top. Please save my life. And the king comes in and he sees Haman on top of his wife. I'm just saying, if he hadn't wet himself yet, it's done. Like, this isn't what it looks like. It's not. I promise. So here's what happened. King exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she's in with me? Well, she is with me in the house. As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Amon's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, here's like the little guy in the corner that speaks up. Like he's just been waiting the whole time. He says, a pole reaching the height of 50 cubits, 75 feet, stands by Haman's house. He put it in his front yard. He set it up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help you, the king. 
So the king says, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. What a banquet. (laughs) Am I right? I mean, you just look at that and you go, what the heck? This is in the Bible? What a crazy story. And then this is what happens. Esther 8, chapter 8, verse 7. King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew because Haman attacked the Jews. I've given his estate to Esther. They have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. And so Esther and Mordecai write a document that says if you're a Jew in all the provinces and all the land, you can protect yourself. And on this day, you can take up arms and you won't be annihilated. You won't be destroyed. And you just take a step back and you go, wow, God showed up. And where it looked like evil was just pummeling and pummeling and pummeling, God was working in the background, moving people where they needed to be moved, causing people unrest and not sleeping. And he needed one person who he had given a position of influence, who was willing to be obedient and use her gift of leadership and of influence and of power and of resources who could go before the king and plead on behalf of her people. Where is that area of life for you? As you look at your life, is evil winning somewhere? Is it in a marriage? Is it in your marriage? Is it in family? Is it neighbors? Is it friends? It's not too hard for us just to start thinking and go, where is evil winning in my world? Because there's a really good chance that that is the section of the kingdom that God is calling you to step into as a representative of him and one who brings influence, not to dictate results, but to be obedient and say, God, here I am. I will leverage whatever it is that I have, whatever you've given me, whatever you've given me, because a time such as this, it demands it the most. Where is God calling you to step into as his people? And here's the thing, Esther points us to Jesus. She does. I mean, even her name, pleasant fragrance, righteous and hidden. Here was Jesus, the son of God, righteous as can be, and yet no one could see it. She sacrificed her earthly position before the king, and Jesus sacrificed his heavenly position for us. Esther did it for her people. Jesus did it for his people. She risked her life. Jesus died on a cross, and Haman, evil, was defeated on a pole, and death was defeated on a cross. Do you see how a story about a woman hundreds or thousands of years ago pointed us the entire time to one who was to come and would say, I will defeat evil for good, and I'm going to use my church to accomplish it. That is what we've been invited to be a part of. So I'm going to invite Ben to come up. Um, I was having a coffee meeting earlier this week, 
Um, guy I didn't know super well. We had a men's retreat a couple weeks back, and he was like, hey, can we do coffee? And so we did coffee, and he starts asking me sermon questions, and what do you do for prep, and stories, and this and that. And so we're talking, um, and finally I just go, why do you care so much? You know, most of you don't, so why do you care so much? Just kidding, that's a jab. And uh, he's like, well, I, I, I have like a podcast, and I'm a blogger. And I go, oh, you're a blogger, awesome. And I'm like, tell me about your blog, what do you do? And he's like, it's real estate investing and this and that. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. And I said, what, what's your audience like? Like how many people do you reach like on a normal basis? And he said, uh, I have 150,000 subscribers to my website every month. I go, oh. And he goes, yeah, I have an iTunes podcast that reaches about 3,000 people and then I have 17,000 YouTube subscribers. I go, oh, you're a blogger. Like, you're legit. And he makes an income from this, and he does this, and I start asking him questions, and all, all of a sudden, I'm like, I judge you. I'm very sorry. And this is where the conversation turned, um, is we started talking about how do you leverage your platform and your influence that God has given you for the kingdom? He has 170,000 people that he has access to on a monthly basis. And here's what he's asking, how do I use this for the kingdom? Because I can spend time and build a castle here on earth and I can, you know, make this all about me and build my wealth and build everything that I want, everything I care about, or I can invest it in a kingdom that will never end and that will save people from an eternity separate from God. That's what I care about. How do I do that? And my response is the same as what I just said to you. We're not in the results business. We don't get to dictate how God uses us, but what we are in is the obedience business. And we simply get to come before God and say, God, here's what I have. Would you just show me where you want me to move? Show me where you want to step into. Show me where you want me to speak. Show me where you want me to give. Whatever it is, God, I just want to be obedient to you, just like Esther, because there's a good chance that you've been called to step into a situation where evil is prevailing for a time such as this. And so this is Abraham. This is Moses. This is David, this is Esther, and this is us. Would you pray with me? God, we're just grateful for you. Grateful for who you are. Grateful that you've called us to be a part of your church. Thank you for defeating evil. Thank you for conquering death. And thank you for using us in a powerful way as a part of your story. God, I just pray that, that you would highlight areas where evil is winning in our context, as small as a dispute in a family and as large as abortion in our country. God, wherever it is that you're calling us to step in, to be obedient, to do whatever it is you've called us to do, God, you used one person all throughout scripture, just small individuals, no-name people who are willing to say, yes, God, I commit to you, I surrender to you, and I will be used by you in whatever way you see fit. God, I pray that you would raise up those people in this church this morning who can surrender to you and follow you to make an investment in the kingdom that will never end. We love you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.